So we had three things, Common Core, teacher evaluation systems, and charter schools being pushed at our public schools during, during the, the Obama administration. This is Wine, Women, and Revolution with your host, Heather Warburton. Hi, and welcome to Wine, Women, and Revolution. I'm your host, Heather Warburton, coming at you here on Create Your Future Productions. Create Your Future Productions is the only place you can find new episodes of Wine, Women, and Revolution. And you can find us online at yourfuturecreator.com. Follow us on all the social medias and get us wherever you get your podcasts from. Today, I am going to be talking about education, which you know is a topic I've covered a few times here. But I've got with me today the author of Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy, Derek Black. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So I guess, you know, the most important thing to talk about is when we're recording this, Betsy DeVos is kind of going to be on her way out soon. She's not got, by the time people listen to this, she may be in her last few weeks of torturing American education. So that's kind of exciting. <laughs> Yeah, it was. I you know I had a post I put up the other day and said after watching the, you know the the results come in, uh, people were enormously excited uh, for the end of the Trump presidency or the end of him as president. But running a close second, I think, was the end of Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education. I mean, if you were if you were looking at things, there were immediately articles going up, and and I I actually got one of the biggest responses I've had on, on Twitter. Uh, and in a few weeks at least, and it was just mentioning that Betsy was on her way out, and, and certainly folks are looking forward to that. Absolutely. But we can't just pretend that all the attack, the recent attacks on public education just started under the Trump presidency. It's been a while now that they, uh, public education has been under attack. And um, when you're, you sort of laid out your book that you talk kind of about the current political climate a little bit and dove into the history, which that's kind of what we're going to do here today, is a little bit of talk about how kind of we are where we got to right now. And you said, uh, you know, under Obama, when he appointed Duncan, um, that was a pretty bad sign for how they were going to be dealing with public education, right? Yeah, I mean, Arnie Duncan had been superintendent in Chicago Public Schools and had been part of a pretty massive expansion of charter schools there. And there was also clearly a divide at that moment. A lot of folks were talking about Linda Darling-Hammond as being the Secretary of Education. Her name is coming up again, although she just said she wasn't interested recently. But her name was, was in the mix, and the far, or, or I should say the right, sort of came out vehemently against her, saying, look, you know, she, she's too committed to the status quo. We need somebody to shake it up. And so when Obama appoints uh, Duncan, he appoints him in the idea of being that he's someone who could speak to both sides, both the traditional public education side and the privatization side. But what I lay out in the book is that he ends up really giving quite a lot to the privatization side and not really doing any, well, not doing much to firm up the, the public education schools themselves. And he did a lot of it through executive actions. Can you talk about some of the executive actions that he took um, while he was in office? Yeah, I mean, I got involved with that. I actually ended up being an expert witness in a case against Arne Duncan. Um, seems like a lifetime ago. But yeah, so during the No Child Left Behind era, there was this requirement that all schools uh, get students up to proficient levels by 2014. 
And by about 2012, 2011, it became clear that was not going to happen. In fact, we knew it wasn't going to happen for quite a while. The numbers were, were showing, it as, showing us as much. But at that point, something like I think it was 70 or 80 percent of schools were set to be labeled as failing or in needs of improvement under No Child Left Behind. So there was going to be all these sanctions and targets coming, uh, coming at our public schools. And what Duncan does is use that moment in time to say, look, I will relieve you of the sanctions of No Child Left Behind if you will accept a new set of conditions. And amongst those conditions, uh, one was adopting the Common Core Curriculum. It didn't say the words Common Core Curriculum, but it, it, it talked about a nationalized uh, set of standards. So it was adopting the Common Core Curriculum, also adopting uh, a set of teacher evaluation systems, which was also underway in, in some states, which would basically, as he said, hire, fire, and retain teachers based upon how their students were doing on standardized test scores. And so that was an enormous uh, deal as well. The other thing that he had done, although it wasn't part of those conditions, but it was part of Race to the Top, uh, which was new money that was given to, to schools to try to deal with um, the prior recession. And he said, look, if any school maintains, or any state uh, maintains arbitrary caps on charter schools, they will jeopardize their eligibility for federal funds. So we had three things, Common Core, teacher evaluation systems, and charter schools being pushed at our public schools during during the, the Obama administration. And I think you talked a little bit about the, uh, in Florida, they started putting in uh, vouchers, although vouchers were technically illegal under the Florida Constitution. So they ended up just calling it a scholarship program to send you to private and charter schools, right? Yeah, that part, you know, we can't uh, put that on on, Dun on Duncan. And to be clear, you know, I do think that, that Duncan was was well intentioned. I, I don't I don't think he was out to harm our public schools. I just think we didn't we didn't get the mix correct under him. But there were a lot of folks who were dead set on on actually privatizing and harming our public schools, and that's through vouchers. Um, and in the aftermath of the recession, you saw a lot of states starting to say, look, we can't afford public education, so maybe we can pay for something cheaper on the side, or maybe we can remove our, 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 our higher-cost kids into the private system. And Florida was and has been the leader on this. So um, as you know, at one point, or initially during the Jeb Bush uh, administration, those vouchers that moved money from the public schools to private schools were deemed unconstitutional. But then they cook up this scheme whereby they're going to give out all these tax credits, or they call them tax credits, um, to people who will pay for the tuition at, at those private schools. And that system just exploded during, uh, during the aftermath of the recession. In fact, at this point now, uh, Florida is spending uh, roughly a billion dollars a year on private tuition in the form of you know, tax credits and other sort of workarounds. Right. And you also mentioned in the book, um, you may not know this, but I'm from New Jersey. So former Governor Chris Christie was definitely one of the people who was leading the charge to try to vilify public education teachers. And that was something kind of new that we'd never seen before of actually casting teachers as the villains in the story. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really a, a sad state of affairs, which, you know, our public school teachers have, have always been paid uh, relatively modest wages, but the idea was job stability, you know, respect in the community and a good retirement, and people would sort of make that trade-off, and also a passion for teaching itself. But during the recession, all of a sudden, um, we had governors like 
Chris Christie and, and Scott Walker in Wisconsin saying that it's our public school teachers that are the problems themselves, right? They get paid too much. They don't do anything. You know, education would be a lot better if we could just get rid of the, of, of the bad teachers. You know, Chris Christie said, you know, I'd like to give a, a lot of those uh, union folks a punch in the mouth and that they're the most destructive force in American politics. So there is a lot of targeting of teachers and teacher unions as being the reason why uh, our schools are not performing. So it's like our long-serving, uh, suffering public servants are all of a sudden the problem uh, instead of the folks who are actually being uh, mistreated. And I'm proud to say that if you saw that classic picture of Chris Christie, like wagging his finger in a teacher's face, that teacher's a friend of mine and she's been on the show a few times. So I'm always supporting of Melissa and all of her work with public education. But also in New Jersey here, we also had Cory Booker horribly pushing for charter schools in New Jersey. So it's kind of across the aisle. They reach across the aisle to really try to attack public education now. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't, as to Corey, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say characterize him on education policy, and I definitely disagree with him on a lot, but I think what you have is, you know, a certain portion of the Democratic Party got captured by by the possibility of charters as opposed to the reality of charters, and, and even I, and, and, you know, a decade and a half ago, didn't know their reality and was willing to at least listen to their possibility or think, oh, this, you know, this isn't really even a big deal at all. But the reality of them has become far more problematic than the idea of them. And, and the other thing we have is, is the tail wagging the dog, right? Sort of rich philanthropists who have been successful in the private sector, you know, the, the Gates and the Walmarts of the world. And they think that if our public schools would just operate like the private sector, that everything would be better. And they spent you know, millions, if not billions of their own dollars to push that agenda. So if I'm the mayor of Newark and Mark Zuckerberg comes to me and says, hey, mayor, you know, would you like $600 million for your public schools or $600 million for your for your students in, in Newark? I'm probably going to feel like the answer is yes before I hear the rest of that sentence, you know. I mean, Newark schools, you know, severely underfunded. And so I think we have rich philanthropists playing in a sandbox that they really knew little of and moving, you know, Democratic mayors, Democratic governors, et cetera, in a direction that that in the long term has been harmful for public education. But despite our current climate of lots of attacks kind of coming from all sides on public education, the U.S. government has been really interested in educating its citizenship. And that kind of goes back to the very beginning, the founding fathers who, I mean, I'm not one to canonize the founding fathers at all. You know, I think they were pretty bad people, but they really were deeply committed to educating the public. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, what this book, I think, does in in the biggest sense is to try to re-articulate the American narrative about public education. You know, so many folks are committed to this idea that these local schools are are ours, they operate based upon what we want to do with them, and the feds need to stay out of it, and and maybe even the state needs to stay out of it. And what this book does is is says that that may be the fiefdom that you're operating under, but that's not the idea of America. That if we go back to the idea of America, uh, it is that all citizens need to be educated and our and our government at the very highest levels has to make that happen that we cannot have you know sort of some communities providing a 
education and some not, or some providing good education and others not, that we need at the highest levels of leadership to guarantee uh, expansion and quality across the nation. So we go back to the founding and I say, look, you know, the idea of America in 1776 is a radical idea. At that moment in time, the world is ruled by kings and queens. The notion that you would hand this over to regular folks, and to be clear, like you said, we shouldn't, we shouldn't canonize them uh, incorrectly. By regular folks, they meant regular white men, not, not anyone else. And sometimes they didn't even mean regular white men. They meant regular white men who owned property. But that was still a much larger chunk of the world than just kings and queens, right? That farmers could vote, right? That's a radical idea. And so the founding fathers say that if we're going to turn this thing over to regular folks, they've got to be educated. They have got to be able to find the common good. They have got to be able to resist tyranny on their own uh, terms and to separate the hucksters from the good faith politicians. And so in the Northwest Ordinance, before we even have the United States Constitution, the Continental Congress carves up the rest of the nation and sets the rules for how the territories will become uh, states. And what they do is to say that every single town in the remainder of the United States shall be divided up into squares, and the center square in each of those towns shall be reserved for public schools. And the outerlying lots in those towns shall be reserved to generate resources for those public schools. And again, that was the manifestation of this idea that if this radical experiment of democracy is going to work, we have to have a system for educating uh, that democracy. Right. In the book, you kind of said they didn't have money to give yet. They're, you know, the country was just being formed. They couldn't give money. So they gave what they had at the time, and that was land. And that was showing their commitment, even though it was a little different than what we do you know, nowadays. That was laying out. They were putting their land where their mouth was, and you know, they didn't have money yet. That's right. I mean, America was also poor in those in those early years to go along with that. And, and land itself was not that valuable because there was always more of it westward. So why is it that one piece of land is going to generate, you know, enormous resources unless it's actually got something valuable, you know, underneath it? So land itself is not, doesn't generate the money that they thought it would and land sales didn't either. And, you know, the Civil War brings uh, this to the forefront, which is we number one, need not just an idea of public education, but we need actual guarantees of it. So following the Civil War, Congress forces the southern states as a condition of readmission to adopt constitutional clauses guaranteeing education. So in all of the state constitutions, there's a clause that mandates the provision of often called a uniform system of schools open to all. Right. And so that's a that's a radical new thing. Not that we're just going to say, hey, education is a good idea and make a lot in the middle of town for it. But rather now we have states guaranteeing as a constitutional matter access to this public education. And by the same token, they also adopted poll taxes. You know, poll taxes today are thought of as, as, as a dirty word, a way to disenfranchise African-American and poor people. But during Reconstruction, it was literally African-Americans who came up with the idea of poll tax. So they said, there's one thing that we know everyone wants to do in the aftermath of the Civil War, and that is to seize the reins of democracy and vote. And we know that land isn't worth much, but maybe people will pay, you know, a dollar to vote. And so they, that's, what, that's what the freedmen came up with here in South Carolina. They were the majority of the Constitutional Convention and said, we are going to impose a poll tax, uh, and every single dollar of it will go to support public education. Um, but they did have an exception there. They said, but if you can't afford to pay for it, 
we'll let you vote anyway. So they weren't trying to exclude folks from the ballot box. They were just trying to raise funds for, for our public schools. And that moment in time, that period, really changes the entire course of history as it comes to public education because now it's becoming a constitutional right as opposed to just this voluntary thing that, that some states might do. I did want to talk a little bit more about that Reconstruction period, but before we moved on to there, you had one quote in the book uh, that I particularly liked, that it was from Jefferson, which I you know it's a kind of dealing with consent, which is, I know, not a good topic to talk about usually with Jefferson, but in this, he said that the government basically derived its powers from the consent of the government. And you have to be educated about what's going on and able to even be in a position to give that consent to your government. And I thought that was an interesting quote from him. Yeah, it, it, really, it really is uh, a mind bender in, in many respects for, for folks who haven't thought about it. So, you know, Jefferson is someone who's skeptical of government. And if, you, if you've seen Hamilton uh, or, or listened to Hamilton, you know that Jefferson was concerned with all these Federalists and the Hamiltons of the world sort of seizing power. Jefferson is skeptical of that, right, this sort of exercise of government power. And his argument is that the only way that government's exercise of power is valid over an individual is if that individual consents to that power. But he says, if you don't understand government, if you don't understand its issues, if you don't understand what it's doing in the world, then your consent is ineffective so to speak. And so the way that government becomes legitimate is for citizens to have enough knowledge to freely and validly consent to the exercise of, of, of governmental power. So yes, for him, public education is a linchpin of the democracy that we have today. And now I did want to move on to that Reconstruction period, because that's when, you know, public education really expanded. And that was mainly driven by the hands of the freed slaves. They were more committed to public education than anyone and started putting these things in place, kind of, you know, leading the way there. Yeah, I mean, one of the most eye-opening parts of doing this book, and I think really the emotional heart of this book is learning about the experiences of African Americans during slavery, what they did to actually learn to read and write uh, in secret, knowing that uh, it was a crime and knowing that they could be killed or punished for it. And so it was an incredibly valuable thing to them because it was the thing that could secure their freedom. Um, to, and, and so they wanted it, right? That was the thing that they could use to share information and organize. And one of the things that was was startling to missionaries as they went south, right at the end of the civil at the end of the Civil War, was that um, actually a lot of slaves already knew how to read and write. They'd been teaching each other in secret, and so there was a, a base to, to build upon there. And then when they begin to flee to freedom, they want that education to be far more formal. So before the Civil War is even open, schools begin to pop up. Freedmen schools here. Um, uh, in Virginia and South Carolina and elsewhere, and the Union troops are, are, are struck and amazed by how much the freedmen wanted to learn and how much of their time they were devoting towards it and, and how they were willing to give what little funds they had, you know, as people who were just enslaved, giving away money and raising money to support this, this public education system. So that provides, you know, the backbone for these constitutional measures and if I might just take liberty for just a moment for, for those who, who, who may have seen um, David Chappelle on, on Saturday Night Live the other day when he talks about his grandfather, a great-grandfather, a former slave in South Carolina, 
that when, when he became freed, Dave Chappelle said that he devoted his life to three things, education, uh, the freedom of black folks, and, and religion, or Jesus Christ, as he said it. And I think it's just really important for people to understand how education was part of freedom and how completely unified the African-American community was into creating this system of public education, knowing that it was the gateway to freedom. And they didn't just free themselves. They helped free a lot of poor white folks that weren't getting education either. And that, that's an important thing to, to think about in the modern era as we have all these divisions about who's getting what or who it's for and racial and other sort of divisions. That Ultimately, the public education system is the gateway to freedom for all. And we owe an incredible, here in the South at least, an incredible debt, debt of gratitude to, to the freedmen for that. And you talked a little bit about how that became, when states were rejoining the Union, they had to sort of solidify into their state constitutions something of a region about public education. And didn't you actually say, furthering that out, when New Mexico, was it, first tried to get statehood, they were rejected because they didn't have an education provision, right? Yeah, that's right. So in the middle of the Civil War, there are 10 states that are still not readmitted, you know, uh, Tennessee had come back into the Union uh, before the Civil War was even over, or right at the end of the Civil War. They were never really in f full rebellion for, for the Civil War because it, as a border state, it was just taken back over very quickly. But the remaining Confederacy, um, Congress says, to re-enter to, to re the Union, you have to extend the ballot to African Americans, um, and you have to adopt the 14th Amendment, and you have to rewrite your state constitutions. And, and all this debate about what it meant to rewrite state constitutions, they said, look, it has to be a Republican form of government, which takes us back to those Jeffersonian ideas, those Adams ideas and Washington ideas, which was a Republican form of government is one in which the people are educated and can consent to power and can participate in government. So um, Congress is very clear that we want education clauses in there. And in fact, the last three Confederate states to be readmitted, Mississippi, uh, Virginia, and Texas, the statute under which Congress readmits them in 1870 explicitly writes into the statute that as a condition of readmission, uh, they shall never deprive any citizen of the rights they had just vested in their state constitution. There's actually litigation going on right now as we speak in Mississippi over that condition of readmission. So that's the Confederate states. And, and as, as, you, as you point out, I, I say that that idea of education as being a condition uh, for being a state carries on even after the Civil War. So New Mexico, when it is trying to become a state, files its papers, files its constitution. That constitution, it's got a few problems in them, and a big one is public education is not in it. So Congress says, nope, not admitting you, New Mexico, you need to rewrite your constitution again. They rewrite it, make you know, some change, including putting public education in there, and then you know, New Mexico becomes a state just like everyone else, and it has public education in its constitution. Yeah, so it was clearly something that was really important to the federal government continually throughout the whole formation of the country. So it's not surprising, you know, that that would sort of keep just blossoming and blossoming during that Reconstruction time. But unfortunately, after Reconstruction, we did lead into the Jim Crow era and attacks. Well, everybody was still deeply committed to educating white kids, then they decided, well, maybe we don't need to extend that 
to black people anymore. And that's when sort of the attacks on public education for certain segments of the population. And you laid out a few of them in your book. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened in that time period? Yeah, it's it's a curious it's a curious time period because what you have is this expanding commitment to the right to education, but this resurgence of racism at the same time. And those two things interconnect. And the question is, can we can we separate them out in our minds any? So, you know, in Mississippi, when they come together for the Constitutional Convention of 1890, they say, we've come together for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to uh, disenfranchise the Negro. And that meant taking away the right to vote as best they could and restricting access to public education. So most people know the voting story very well, and most people know that that's where we start segregating schools again. But there's this curious debate that happens at the same time, which is, you know, I I mentioned that a lot of white folks were getting education they never had before. Well, that public education system was really a product of of black aspirations and and, and a black idea. And so there are some in Mississippi and the Constitutional Convention that say, let's just take public education out of the Constitution altogether. Let's get rid of this black idea. Let's get rid of spending money on black kids, et cetera, et cetera. And there are others that go, that's a bridge too far. Uh, that ultimately public education had become uh, an integral part of of government. And there were a lot of white folks that wanted it. So what happens, or the silver lining, I I tell, is that public education actually survives racism. Racism tried to kill public education, but racism was not enough to kill public education. And because they didn't kill it, that constitutional right lives on even today for, well, I mentioned litigation just a moment ago in regard to it, and, and, and the same thing in other states. So it, it, this sort of tension between um, this commitment to the idea of America, where everyone gets public education, uh, juxtaposed against sort of the rise of racism, created, created a, a struggle during that period of time. But speaking of litigation, eventually, you know, all that, and uh, NAACP starts launching a series of uh, litigations, which ultimately leads us to Brown versus Board of Education, which you talked quite a b- bit about that series of lawsuits in the book. Do you think we can real briefly kind of touch on, you know, some, or summarize all of them sort of together? Yeah, I mean, the short story there is that most people think of Brown versus Board of Education as purely about segregation in schools. But when you look at the briefing and the arguments that bring the United States Supreme Court to the point at which it is willing to strike down school segregation. It's really these democracy arguments that for two decades, um, the NAACP had been building this theory of education as a gateway to citizenship. And how can you really be a citizen in the United States if that gateway is blocked or there's two different gateways to citizenship? And so that idea, you find it in Brown versus Board of Education itself. It says that public education is the very foundation of good citizenship and no child could be reasonably suspected, uh, expected uh, to succeed in life if they were denied it. And so that it wasn't sort of segregation per se is bad, but rather education is the foundation of democracy that's a key moving piece of the puzzle and, and making Brown a reality. And so that idea, right, that stretches all the way back to the founders, you see it again coming to life in Brown versus Board of Education. And the Supreme Court actually was a real ally to education for a good chunk of time, I guess up until sort of the Nixon era, right, was when the Supreme Court sort of took a turn to be not so friendly to education. 
Yeah, it's like too much democracy or, or, or sort of the status quo couldn't couldn't tolerate too much democracy. And so Nixon uh, it, it campaigns on and it's clear that he wants to reverse and limit school desegregation. And so he uh, makes appointments to the United States Supreme Court for the explicit purpose and folks who have explicit backgrounds and being hostile towards Brown and some of the cases that came after it. And so as soon as Nixon begins to make a, makes two appointments to the Supreme Court, we see the promise of Brown begin to unravel and all these sort of new rationales for limiting uh, integration and also for limiting the concept of equal school funding. They all begin to, to make their way into the Supreme Court jurisprudence at that point. And you also talk about one of my kind of favorite mustache twirling villains would be Justice Powell. Um, you know, anyone that's listened to the show, you've certainly heard me talk quite a bit about the Powell memo and how his attack on organizing groups and how businesses need to get together and act as if they themselves were an organizing group. And so he's definitely one of the mustache twirling villains in history. And he was one of those people who also was part of the, now the Supreme Court does not support education, which I mean, it shouldn't be surprising if he wanted to corporatize everything, wanting to corporatize education was kind of par for his course. Yeah, I mean, Powell is a, a an enigma on, on many levels because, I mean, I, Kudos to you for, for, for looking at it so closely. You know, he, there is, he, he, he puts a good face on some things. He's ambiguous as to others. And you, you try to get a sense of where he's, he's coming from. I can tell you the African-American uh, community thought he was coming from a bad place, particularly given the fact that he had been on the Richmond, uh, Virginia school boards and had been part of the foot dragging following Brown. He'd been on the State Board of Education. Um, when they had authorized vouchers for, for white families who wanted to close down public schools rather than integrate. So he's part of that whole story, but I guess he's also a politician that he's cagey and he sort of keeps this low profile so you don't really see um, his name or his votes or his arguments in those debates. You just know he's part of the story. And so he can arguably hide behind this notion of, well, I was just representing my clients. I don't know that makes it you know, whether that makes it any better or not, you can leave it to the listeners. But, you know, he writes a brief, you know, in, in Swan versus Mecklenburg, which is um, about busing children for integration, where he's completely opposed to it, or his clients are completely opposed to it. And, you know, the, the, the Legislative Caucus, African American Caucus, you know, they, they start releasing all this information saying, how in the world can we put this guy on, on the Supreme Court when his agenda would look like would be a reversal of Brown? But Nonetheless, he gets there, and, and when he gets there, he sugarcoats uh, a lot of these things. You know, there's a case um, um, out of Denver, uh, Keys versus School District Number 1, that ends, effectively ends school desegregation in the North for the most part. And he, you know, it's a very complicated case, but basically he is expressing enormous sympathies towards integration at the same time that he's trying to limit it. And it's kind of hard to see where where he's coming from. But the net result is Powell in the Supreme Court ends up being very bad business for the right to education and school desegregation. And so, you know, we're kind of running up on time now, but one question that I often ask people is, are you optimistic? And before you added on the COVID uh, ending to the book, you do express optimism about public ed education. You think that 
it is part of this country. And despite our current system of attacks, that public education will prevail, right? Well, you're you're a wonderful reader, first of all. I mean, you're right. I mean, if you t if you take that COVID piece, which I actually put in um, after the book was done, the book was done, COVID hadn't happened, and then it's about to go to press, and I, I sort of add that in there. I am very optimistic, right? I say, you know, look, you can't look at tens of thousands of people in the streets revolting against this um, this assault on public education, and, and be anything but inspired by these folks, right? You have to believe that the sort of the power of their voices and their feet is going to make a difference. COVID resets a lot of that, and 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 you know, I'm, I have new worries. I'm less optimistic than I was before, but I do remain that that I do stay true to that fundamental notion that, you know, the the idea of this nation uh, is is interlocked with public education. And it's also an experience that 90% of the people in this country have gone through, and it's a very personal experience. And most people value those public schools. And so I don't think it's something that, that folks are going to throw away um, easily. Part of the book is actually to help people understand how much is at stake, because it's easy to lose something when you don't know someone is trying to pick your pocket. So what I'm really trying to convey in this book is there is a group of folks who are trying to pick the pocket of public education. They're trying to turn the public against public education. And we need to open our eyes, listen clearly, and push back. And if our eyes are open, I do believe public education will survive and can be stronger than it was before the pandemic and before the last recession. But if we don't have our attention turned to it, uh, the pickpockets are still there waiting, waiting to steal our lunch money. So if people want to get a copy of your book, because we've only kind of barely skimmed the surface, there's a lot of information in this book. It's I learned a lot reading this book, and I always appreciate that when I can learn something from an author. Um, how can people get a copy of it, and how can they get in touch? Can they follow you on social media? Yeah, so the book is, is available anywhere that uh, your favorite books are sold, so I, I don't want to endorse one or the other, but you know, the publisher's public affairs, you can go there, and then all the regular places that you'd find books, it, it's for sale there. Also in a lot of public libraries, so even if you buy a copy for yourself, you know, put a request in at the public library for folks who may not be able to, uh, to afford one themselves. As for following me, I'm on Twitter daily, at uh, Derek W. Black, that's D-E-R-E-K-W. Black always talking about, you know, how these issues are playing out with, with current policy and uh, try, trying to keep tabs and, and hold folks accountable on this. So um, look forward to interacting with folks and readers there as well. All right. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for being here. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been fun to talk to you. To my listeners, thank you so much for joining us here today. We appreciate you more than you could possibly know. We strive to be a voice for stories you're maybe not hearing everywhere, for, you know, standing up for people. And standing up for people's education is one of those commitments that we take really seriously. If you have a chance, we are now on Patreon, and you can donate. You can go onto our donations page, donate through PayPal and Patreon. This is brand new. Really excited about that. And thank you so much for listening. As always, the future is yours to create. Go out there and create it.